Welcome to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and to the latest installment of the School of Golf Architecture. This episode focuses on terrain, specifically on Lynxland, and my guest is George Waters, the manager of Green Section Education for the USGA. So it's obviously a hectic time in the world and in our homes right now, but George made a lot of time for me and gave me a lot of help in putting together this episode. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. So give him a follow at G Waters Golf on Twitter and check out his brilliant book, Sand and Golf, How Terrain Shapes the Game. It's a good one. All right, let's get to it. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. The basic features of a golf course, the varied ground, the sandy hazards, the closely cropped grass, sometimes bordered by longer grasses and shrubs, these weren't theorized in the abstract, agreed upon by some committee. Instead, they were invented by the terrain itself. And that terrain was Lynxland. For a long time, golf and the Lynxland were inextricable. But as the game grew more popular, it moved inland to other types of terrain. The courses built on the heathlands and parklands of England, Europe, and the United States emulated the natural features of the seaside links, contours, bunkers, fairways, roughs. So the Lynxland can be seen as the first and most influential golf architect. In this installment of the School of Golf Architecture, we turn our attention to sandy coastal terrain and learn what we can from it. Lynxland begins with a collision between sea and rock, which creates sand. From there, the wind takes over, moving the sand and dispersing it into beaches. When grains of sand run into obstacles, they come to rest in hummocks. The longer these little landforms survive, the more vegetation they can support. Turf grasses like bent and fescue take hold. The rumpled topography becomes stronger, more fixed in place. This is how a golf-friendly system of sand dunes comes to be. I lifted this narrative from a book called Sand and Golf, How Terrain Shapes the Game. It's a study of sandy, windy coastal landscapes, how they gave rise to golf, and how they might continue to inspire golf course design. The book's author, George Waters, has spent years walking and examining the links, caddying at Royal Dornick and working on sandy sites at Barnboogle Dunes and Pinehurst Number no. 2. He's currently the manager of Green Section Education for the USGA, and his writing can be found on usga.org and in the USGA Green Section record. Today, he's my teacher, and our subject is the Lynxland. You know, one of, one of the things that really struck me in your book was how the early history of golf architecture was so connected to the types of land that golf courses were built on. Could you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, to me, the, the starting point is that is kind of that golf itself is a product of that particular landscape, speaking specifically about the sort of coastal sandy dune landscape. 
because it was there that people found areas of closely cropped grass growing naturally. I mean, a lot of the cool season grasses that we see used, you know, around the world in temperate or cooler climates are naturally occurring in those coastal dune landscapes of the United Kingdom and Ireland. You had uh, the presence of naturally occurring sandy hazards. Uh, It would eventually become what we know as bunkers, but at the time, you know, a natural occurrence in coastal dune landscapes is these areas where the vegetation has been stripped away either by animal activity or by just the force of the wind or, you know, various factors. And so you have this landscape sort of of grassy areas dotted with exposed sand, dotted with sort of clumps of longer grass and, you know, little meandering streams that make their way through it. And so the golf course as we know it, and the game kind of evolved to fit that, right? I mean, the game is a product of the existence of that landscape and the fact that that landscape was considered at the time not to be of much use for anything because it was, you know, poor agricultural land and was largely just treated as common land open for grazing and archery and and whatever else folks wanted to do. I think they, they harvested sort of the hay from the grassy areas at times. So the fact that you had this type of landscape that existed, the fact that it was available for recreational use is what kind of gave rise to the game in those landscapes in the first place. And then you see, you have this sort of idea of closely cropped areas uh, that you're playing through and avoiding these various naturally occurring hazards. And then, you know, as the game becomes sort of formalized and as the idea of a golf course becomes a more formal thing, you start to see those elements, you know, refined and then manipulated to an increasing degree to fit you know, what might be enjoyable for the game and whether those scenarios, you know, sort of evolved naturally at first where there was a natural arrangement of things that people found desirable. And then people got to thinking like, oh, it was cool that we had this situation with this hazard and the, and the green behind it, you know, over there, that could be something that we could replicate, but obviously their ability to replicate, you know, their ability to manipulate the landscape to any great degree, at least in the early days was pretty limited. And so, you know, they kind of had to take things as they found it. But you had those sort of fundamental elements of tightly growing vegetation, sand, some streams, and then some sort of areas of scruffier, longer, rough and or shrubbery. And of course, you had the wind, uh, which is, you know, sort of an inherent aspect of coastal dune landscapes, because the coastal dunes wouldn't really be there if it wasn't for the wind to deposit and move that sand around in the first place. So they kind of go together and and that becomes sort of a fundamental aspect of the game. From there, where did golf move and how did architecture evolve along with it? Golf moved from the links in a variety of different directions, but I think where you really see it taking root is where people found landscapes that were reminiscent of what they could find in the coastal dunes. And at least when you're talking about the United Kingdom and Ireland, the big demonstration case that golf could move inland away from the coastal dunes and be really successful was the heathlands around London, which had much of the same vegetation as was found in the coastal dunes. Again, a sandy area. And you see heather in those coastal dunes as well, but in in greater quantities in the heathland areas. Again, an area that wasn't seen as being especially agriculturally productive or valuable. And so, you know, Bernard Darwin talks about it and 
one of his essays that I think he describes it as the star of sand and heather proved that that inland golf could be not just a copy of coastal links golf, but you know the genuine article. And and I think that that was a big move. Now there were some complications that came with that, where you're starting to talk about things that sort of coastal dune coastal links architects didn't really have to deal with. Large scale tree removal uh, becomes something that you're contending with. You're dealing with soils that don't drain as well. I mean, you're kind of, you're past that sort of windblown sand and you're into, you know, areas that have had trees growing on them potentially for a very long time. You've got organic matter in the soil. It's a different quality. They're still well draining soils, but certainly different. But you see these old pictures of the construction of St. George's Hill, which is a, a Harry Colt course there outside London. And that, I mean, the amount of tree stumps and everything. So it's the process is certainly becoming more complicated and becoming much more like what we would think of as like modern golf course architecture, where it's really got to be planned out in advance because you're clearing, because you're doing some earth moving. I mean, there's a lot more, there's a lot more moving parts, but certainly I think as, as time went on, you know, as our ability to manipulate the landscape increased continually, you know, our ability to do so affordably increased, you saw sort of less regard for site suitability for a time period, I would say, and and more of a more of a focus on we want the golf course here because we're doing a development. We can fix whatever there's no landscape that we can't fix and turn it into a golf course regardless of, you know, what's naturally there, whether it's a swamp, whether it's rock, whether it's super hilly. And I think when you as we've seen down the road, while there are examples of of really exceptional courses that have been built on really difficult sites and challenging sites. There are some limits to that. And certainly the, the skill of the architect is going to be a big, a big factor in that. But there, there are some things that, that are just really, really difficult to overcome. And there's sort of only so much that you, the possibility exists to manufacture a golf course from, from just about anything. But, you know, there's only so many possibilities that are within a person's own mind for what you can manufacture versus what's suggested to you by the natural landscape well if the natural landscape is unsuitable for what you're trying to do those suggestions and those cues from the landscape aren't going to be there and so you often get you know i think a formulaic result where it's just okay we're just gonna we're doing this again regardless of what's there that's well put and it links back to the conversation that i had for the first part of the school of golf architecture series with blake conan where one of the ideas that we settled on was that taking your cues from the place of the golf course tends to lead to a lot more uniqueness in the end than trying to impose your own vision on a piece of land simply because mother nature tends to be more creative and more resourceful in its creativity than man does. Yeah. And just more accidental. I mean, you know, I think it's just, that that was something that struck me about studying, you know, spending a lot of time studying Lynx golf courses is that there was an awful lot of features out there that are just there because they're there. And there's not really, you know, there's not really a rhyme or a reason or necessarily like a structure to it, but that that sort of element of randomness and the willingness slash inability to modify that, but the willingness to embrace it and the inability to wipe it away I think really created this sort of, you've heard the term infinite variety. Well, those courses have it because there's just so much going on in terms of topography, in terms of 
hazard location, the nature of the hazards, especially in the older days when you see what some of those hazards looked like, you know, when they'd have little sections revetted trying to support a bunker that had been eroding, but the rest of it was kind of wild. You had that full range of, of variety in almost every shot. And so stance and lie and everything were always going to be different every time that you played a hole, which, you know, was going to be a factor and really kind of kept those designs fresh. And when you play those courses again and again and again, I mean, I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time on a few really great links courses and play them a lot in a lot of different conditions. And part of what keeps them so interesting is that the ground is so irregular that even if you hit the ball the same all the time, which I definitely don't, you're still never going to end up in exactly the same spot. And an uphill lie versus a downhill lie is going to change how you're going to be able to play the hole. And it's going to bring different things into play. And so it really is always different. And that that element of randomness is just really hard to build. Uh, and Mother Nature is just really good at leaving these sort of, uh, I think Bob Ross called them, these happy little accidents. I mean, that's kind of the, the features that you find in nature that you can kind of work from that just are really hard to pull out of your own mind and just create. I love that we've gotten a Bob Ross mantra in here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so. Let's get really basic here. What are the fundamental advantages of designing golf courses on Lynx land? I mean, I think the first big one is drainage and the fact that, you know, in most cases, the soils drain really, really well. And that's not to say that every Lynx site doesn't have its wet spots, that they don't need drainage installed. They do certainly in sort of the modern context where people are looking for pretty consistent performance. But, you know, drainage allows you to be a lot more free with what the landscape offers because you don't need to worry about draining every little wrinkle and pocket or the other side of that is grading everything out so that everything's surface flows smoothly from across a hole into a basin, whatever it might be, which very quickly kind of gives a landscape a pretty you know, a manipulated look to it. When you need to start doing all that kind of grading, it's hard to, to make it look like you never did anything. So being able to kind of take the site as it is because of that drainage is really beneficial. The fact that the sites just tend to be, you know, wrinkled and more imperfect. I mean, that's just the nature of, of sandy soils and how they're deposited is that they aren't typically just smooth. It's, it's They're going to have arrived where they are either by wind action or by flooding or by glacial deposition, whatever it is, they tend to just kind of arrive in an inconsistent fashion, which gives you that sort of unique, you know, like we talked about those unique irregular features that, that you just don't often find in a lot of other places. And you can leave them alone because you don't necessarily need to worry about the drainage at every little hollow kind of becoming a birdbath like you might on heavier soil where you're going to have the grass isn't going to perform well in every little low spot, whatever it might be. Then obviously the benefit of drainage beyond the type of shapes that you're able to create and leave alone. Another big benefit is just, you know, firmer, bouncier, better golf conditions during more of the year as a result. Uh, and then the options that that opens up in terms of, you know, well now running shots are more practical. I mean, if you have really soft conditions, even if you have open approaches and all of these opportunities for different types of shots, 
if the conditions don't support it, then the shots don't make sense and people don't play them. I mean, unless they're just trying to have fun with it. But I mean, that's the beauty of sort of the firmness that you find on links courses and so forth is that, you know, you're not playing bump and run shots just as some sort of an, you know, an aesthetic desire to play golf like the olden days. Like it, it is actually necessary and, and a more effective way of getting close to the hole because the ground is firm, because the hole is playing downwind, whatever it is, they become a, a necessary aspect of the game as opposed to sort of a novelty. And really firmness is what makes that happen. Firmness and wind is what really makes that happen. Let's dig into that a little bit. The mixture of contour, firmness, and wind seems to be so central in your mind to compelling golf. Uh, You know, your book, Sand and Golf, keeps returning to those ideas, contour, firmness, and wind. And so aside from making bump and run shots more available, or perhaps as a result of making bump and run shots more available, what do those factors of contour, firmness, and wind bring to golf architecture? How do they make the golf courses different and, in your mind, more interesting, more fun to play? I mean, I think that that variety is kind of the underpinning answer to that question. There's just more ways to play the shots and more reasons to play the same basic shot differently. I mean, like we talked about earlier, even from the same basic location in a Lynx fairway, you can have very different lies. And if you've got the combination of an uphill lie into the wind, that's really going to change the thought process behind that shot versus a flat lie with the wind behind or a flat lie with no wind. They're going to be very different kind of shots and just they get you thinking differently, which as you know, the more that you're thinking in golf, the, the tougher the game becomes. So you have those, that changeability of, you know, the wind is not always going to be the same intensity. The wind is not always going to come from the same direction. When you get enough contour happening at a place like you find on a Lynx course, that's going to change every time that you're experiencing it. And then firmness is what, you know, really what drives that. And then the sort of inevitable movement of your ball, either through the air or after impact as a result of the wind or as a result of the contour is going to be very, very different, a very different thought process to kind of analyze than the kind of yardage golf that you find to be much more common, certainly in most of the United States uh, and in most inland sites. Once you have to really start to think about the rollout of the ball after it lands, then you find yourself really studying a lot more of the contours because they're relevant. If you're hitting to a yardage in the middle of the green or wherever it might be, the contouring that's in the approach and around the green and so forth, I mean, you might be you know, aware of it from a, from a visual standpoint or something might look cool or, or whatever it is, but if it's not really a factor in the shot, it's not going to weigh into your mind so much. I mean, it's kind of window dressing as you're hitting over it you know, at least in your mind's eye, as far as the, the plan shot. I mean, whether you end up, you know, executing the shot that you planned is obviously a different story, but it's, it's not a part of the thought process in the same way that it is on Lynx courses, on Heathland courses, on these sort of sandy, windy, firm sites. And that's not to say that, you know, Lynx courses can play soft. I mean, people shouldn't have the illusion that Lynx courses or Heathland courses are always toasty, firm. I mean, if it rains and rains and rains, those courses play soft, but even that is sort of on the continuum of it's interesting to play, you know, one of those courses 
when you can actually hit and hold shots on the greens, I mean, you wouldn't want to do it all the time, but in the context of playing a course that's often firm to play it soft once in a while, it's kind of interesting to see like, wow, this is really, these shots are all really, really different than what I'm used to. So given these playing dynamics, what kinds of golf course designs became native to the Lynx land? So we've already talked about like the infinite variety of natural courses on suitable sites, right? But what kinds of strategic traits did the holes take on as they evolved out of this sandy coastal terrain? And there's a couple of things that I think are sort of, you know, while not absolutely uniform that I think are consistent among the sort of best examples of Lynx golf. And I think obviously, you know, the one that jumps out to a lot of people is wit. And I think that was very much, you know, a direct consequence of the environment in which they're playing. You're talking about very variable winds in terms of strength and in terms of direction. Anybody that's spent a lot of time over there knows that the wind seems to come from, you know, whatever they call prevailing, it, it changes with regularity. And so you need to have that flexibility built into that to just to accommodate that kind of constantly changing and, and pretty impactful dynamic on most links courses. The other aspect is that firm ground factor. I mean, the ball runs out a lot more on those courses. And so shots that are offline are going to travel further offline and that can be desirable, but at the same time, you know, you don't want everything running off into, into some sort of a heavy rough type situation. So I think you see the width kind of built into things on account of those factors. Another thing that you'll see is open approaches to a lot of the greens. You're not going to see a ton of, you know, totally closed off green surrounds that, that really require the aerial shot. Number one, because the courses would have been pretty firm at the time, the opportunity to hold those shots is limited. And especially with the equipment that they were probably using at the time. In addition, with the wind, again, when you're playing downwind, hard downwind, those sort of totally, you know, putting green completely encircled with bunker type situations are really, really tough. So you see a lot of open approaches that give you the opportunity to skip the ball up, mostly out of necessity. The benefit of that is, you know, for good players, it gives them options during these kind of tough conditions. And for the average golfer, for the beginning golfer, for, you know, anybody with a slower swing speed, you have an opportunity to play these great courses pretty effectively without needing to really hit these high, soft landing shots that can be so difficult for most people, you know, or just really aren't in most people's rep repertoire. And so I think that's one of the really positive offshoots of that. Now, the other side of that coin a little bit is that, you know, there's some really great moments in Lynx golf where you do get that green that forces you to put the ball into the air you know, postage stamp. I mean, there's plenty of these sort of famous examples of these holes that really force you to hit the ball up into the air, put it at the mercy of the wind, try to land it on a small target and the tight, you know, tight hazards. And those provide some great moments. But it's the fact that they're special and unique in the context of having been able to play a lot of open approaches that makes them really interesting. If you had links courses that were 18 approach shots, like the postage stamp, it's not going to be very enjoyable uh, for, for just about anybody. So you see the open approaches. I think you also see a lot of hazards placed in approaches, you know, rather than being kind of right up against the front of the green, they're going to be 20 yards short. They're going to be 40 yards short. 
And, you know, if you look at those on an aerial or something, or, you know, look at them on Google earth, you think to somebody that isn't totally familiar with playing golf in those kind of courses, they seem like they're out of play. Why is there a bunker 30 yards short of the green or 40 yards short of the green? Or why are there so many of them like that? And the reason again, is because it becomes a real issue for playing those running approach shots where you need to kind of just hurdle the approach hazard and have it kind of run out and reach the green. And so it kind of becomes, you know, a very interesting challenge of trying to gauge that enough to cover, but not fly it too far that it goes through. Um, and it also, just because of the nature of the landscape there, approach hazards work really well on a lot of those courses because the links aren't super hilly in a lot of cases. I mean, plenty of the more famous Irish courses, yeah, you see more in the way of roll to the ground, but a lot of, you know, Eastern Scotland, England, even a bunch of the west of Scotland, links don't have a ton of, you know, roll to the ground. It's more wrinkle. And so something that appears in the approach can be a really interesting visual challenge because you don't often see very well the ground beyond it. It becomes really a, a touch and feel kind of thing. And it becomes an experience kind of thing where you need to kind of learn the shot and play the whole bunch of times in a lot of different conditions to cope with those hazards, which is a really neat aspect of things. And I think that visual, you know, that sort of visual deception factor is another kind of characteristic of the landscape itself, where because of the flattishness and the kind of all the sea of wrinkles can become kind of tough to decipher, you know, even for people that have played the courses a lot. And so the best links architects used that to their benefit, where they'd hide a little swale short of the green that you know, actually allows the green to seem closer than it really is. The absence of a backdrop, so it gets to be really tough to kind of gauge, you know, exactly how far away something is. All those tricks uh, work really well on a kind of flattish, open, wrinkled plane. And I think that those are some of the characteristics that were really central to, to Link's design. And it's like, you can't just analyze these courses or know what they are by looking at Google Earth and charting out the angles or where you think the shots are going to go because you really have to be on the ground and see how the shots play along the ground in order to determine what the hazards mean. In a lot of different conditions too. I mean, I, you know, I joke that when I first got to Dorna, you know, I bought a yardage guide because I figured, well, this is going to be this will be an invaluable resource out here. And what I learned pretty quickly was that studying the course kind of in plan view, I mean, aside from getting to know sort of the basic locations of the hazards, it wasn't really very useful. And, and knowing the yardages from different points was, you know, again, not terribly useful because, because the wind was so different all the time, because the firmness of the ground you know, it was variable. There were days when it would be really firm, kind of firm. It had just rained and it was playing softer. A lot of that plan view information on Lynx courses is, is really of limited use. And, and it really just becomes kind of a study of the landscape and a study of the contours and a learning process of you know, how do shots react off of different features. And that's all going to change based on the conditions. It's going to change based on how you're playing that day. And so, you know, even though they've got you know, range finders and yardages on every sprinkler on these courses now, it's still very much a game of touch and feel even today. You know, you see these courses that have just sort of the 150 yard post out there and, and that's all the information that you get. 
it's really all the information that you need because there's so much, everything else is so variable that for the vast majority of golfers, I mean, unless you're really dialed in on how well you're hitting the ball and, and how, what your distances are, it, it gets to be pretty touch and feel within 10, 20 yard increments for sure. And depending on the conditions, it can be, you know, even wider increments than that. So it, it really becomes a study of the landscape much more so than a study of the sort of plan view layout. Right. Now, are there some drawbacks to building and maintaining golf on sandy terrain? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, depending on the nature of the sand, I mean, there are certainly sands that are difficult to maintain turf on because they drain so quickly. I don't know that that's like a totally common problem, but I've certainly heard of some well-known places that have struggled in the early going just to kind of get a turf going and get a little bit of receptivity in it. From a construction standpoint, you know, I I think one of the challenges that, you know, certainly we encountered at Barnboogle that, that has kind of shaped the way that they approach building abandoned is the fact that stuff can literally blow away between the time that you build it and the time that you grass it. I mean, that, that malleability can be a little bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, the good thing is that it's easy to kind of put things back together in most cases, but you know, it's not something anybody wants to see where you just, you know, have this whole perfect and ready to go. And then it's just scoured away by the wind. That would be the, certainly one of the, the complexities from construction side. Yeah. And and there's, there seems to be a danger that when you install a golf course on a piece of sandy ground, that the stability that the construction lends to the site will completely change the character of the site. And suddenly you'll get all sorts of things growing in the ground that might not normally have grown in the ground. There's a few different ways to look at that. I'd say, you know, if you look at that from the standpoint of what a links course might have looked like in the 1800s versus today, you'll see a lot more stability in the landscape as a product of the golf course. And the fact that either one, just having the turf and having the maintained turf there does something to stabilize the landscape and kind of take some of that moving sand out of play, which changes the character of the landscape and kind of lends itself towards some, some succession of shrubs and trees and so forth. And number two, the golf course is there. People are invested in having it there. And so you get things like these videos these days on you know social media of these kind of wind and sand storms that you get at Valley Bunyan in these places where it's just you know sand covering fairways and on and on. That's not seen as desirable. So certainly they're cleaning up after those kind of events. They're building coastal defenses to kind of keep the courses put, which is very sensible. But the cost of that or the, you know, the impact of that is that you do disconnect that Lynx landscape a little bit from, from the sea through those efforts because a dynamic landscape and a fixed element like a golf course don't you know, necessarily go perfectly hand in hand, especially when that, that dynamism is, is just you know, right there on the margins of the two things. And so the other side of that coin, though, is that you, know, you get places where Invasive vegetation has already populated an area, which is very common. I mean, you see places like Oregon where gorse was introduced to try to stabilize those dunes, you know, back in the day because the blowing sand was seen as a nuisance, not as a, as a cool aspect of coastal dune environments. 
And so, you know, in the process of building band and dunes, you're removing a lot of that invasive vegetation, you're keeping it out, you're taking steps to preserve and kind of maintain some of these more natural environments. And I think you see more and more of that now on a lot of links courses in the UK and Ireland and over here where they're making more of an effort to remove some of the symptoms of that stability, get some more moving sand in the landscape in places where they can afford to have it, increase some of the ecological value, bring back some of the the elements of the courses that would have been there, you know, in a more dynamic time. So I think as we look at it going forward, I think with the greater awareness of ecology and the places that these courses have, you know, in the greater ecosystem and the specialness of the landscapes that they occupy, you're going to see more of the golf course being there actually helping to restore and at times preserve some of what it would have been lost otherwise. The subtitle of George's book is How Terrain Shapes the Game. In talking with him, I think I came to understand better what that phrase means. The Lynxland wasn't just a first arena for our stick and ball pastime. It defined golf. It gave the sport its original ethos. Not only golfer versus golfer, but also both of them versus nature. An ethos of local pride rooted in unique landscapes of Musselboro versus St. Andrews. An ethos of the varied, the unpredictable, the creative, the individualistic, the adventurous. Here's how George himself puts it in the epilogue of Sand and Golf. Sandy terrain allows golfers of all ages and abilities to enjoy the game in their own way, making it much easier for the game to grow and play a lasting role in people's lives. Golf on sandy terrain can be extremely challenging, but mostly it is about fun, creativity, studying the landscape, coping with bad bounces, and relishing the good ones. It is about enjoying a golf course as part of nature, complete with irregularities and imperfections. Rather than detracting from the experience, those imperfections make the game more interesting and somehow more real. As golf migrated away from the Lynxland, golfers tended to forget these pains and pleasures, along with the temperament needed to receive both. Again, terrain shapes the game, and when the terrain is softer, more manufactured, and more predictable, our ideas about the sport we play on it shift accordingly. We expect help from the ground and from those who shape and maintain it. We ask for a fair test of mechanical skill. There are those who enjoy this version of golf, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are others who find the Lynxland and its ethos irresistible. The problem is, not many of us live by the sea or by inland sand hills, or anywhere near a course that uses sandy terrain to full advantage. So I leave you with this question. If we so desire, what can we do, and what can our local courses do, to recapture some of the character and spirit of Lynx Golf? Now, I actually posed this question, at least the agronomic side of it, to George. His answer ended up on the cutting room floor, but I will include it in the post I make for this episode on thefriedegg.com. Also, if you have your own thoughts about this subject, reach out to us on Twitter. You'll find the fried egg at the fried egg with underscores between each word, me, Garrett Morrison, at gfordgolf, and George Waters at gwatersgolf. Let's keep the discussion going.